0: What's up, y'all? Brandon here from Order Within. Today's episode is going to be a deep, enlightening conversation around narcissism, what narcissism looks like, the different types of narcissism, and the ways that we can recover and heal from narcissistic abuse. The concept of narcissism is well known, but the common components of it and how frequently it shows up in our lives is not as much discussed as it should be. And our guest, Chelsea Brooke Cole, is a therapist who focuses specifically on narcissistic abuse and how to heal from that trauma. So you'll find a lot of enlightening tips, strategies, and things to consider when dealing with narcissistic relationships and a very narcissistic society that we find ourselves in. So, with that being said, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Order Within navigating a world of endless chaos and crisis. Many of us are experiencing inner turmoil, insecurity, anxiety, fears, and isolation. These feelings are only being amplified by news cycles, social media, and never-ending political madness. How do we find our way out of the chaos? How do we find strength within ourselves? How do we find meaning in a world driven by materialism? These questions and many more, I aim to answer on the show. My goal is to be a trusted guide on your journey to selfhood. May you find what you seek. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm your host, Brandon Ward, back with another episode of Order Within. We've got a fantastic guest today. Chelsea Brooke Cole is a licensed psychotherapist, certified partner trauma therapist, coach, and speaker specializing in narcissistic abuse and relational trauma. She is the best-selling author of "If only I'd Known How to Outsmart Narcissist, set guilt-free boundaries, and create unshakable self-worth. Chelsea's content provides support to thousands of narcissistic abuse survivors. Each day through her thriving online community, you can more learn you can learn more about working with Chelsea or her resources at chelseabrookcole.com. And at the end of the show, we'll point to we'll have all that stuff in the show notes for y'all as you're listening. And I know that Chelsea will share a little bit more about her work and how she helps specifically for narcissistic abuse survivors. But
1: Thank Chelsea, you. I've been really welcome. looking forward to this conversation because we are going to get into a lot of fun topics.
0: Me too. I was just telling you before we hopped on, I'm super close to finishing your book. I've been really enjoying it. It's, there's a lot of, I think one of the things that stands out most to me initially, Chelsea, is just there's a lot of misperception mm-hmm. around narcissism. And I think when we think about narcissism, often people imagine the kind of grandiose, very ego centered, robust, kind of uh, external or or extroverted narcissist. But that's actually a very small <laughs> slither from from what I'm learning. And and it's your book has highlighted a lot of challenges that I've faced in relationships and family throughout my life yeah. because of that. So the misperceptions, like what. It's big, isn't it? Yeah. In our the society? grandiose
1: narcissist is what most people think of when they hear the term narcissist. And as you were saying, they tend to be extroverted, charming, charismatic, arrogant. They, they have that kind of energy where some people you're pulled, you're drawn to them. You kind of want to be around them because of their charm and charisma. They tend to be very socially adept. If you're a little bit more like highly sensitive, you may be turned off by their larger than life presentation. But overall, they're, they're the, the people kind of narcissists. Like, like you said, they're extroverted, they're, they're charming, and so they will draw people in. So those can be sometimes a little bit easier to spot, especially if they're just obviously arrogant or, you know, brash or over the top. But yeah, like in my book, I talk about six types of narcissists. The one I think we overlook the most is called a vulnerable narcissist. It's usually referred to as a covert narcissist and it's just referred to that way because their narcissism is more hidden. And so the vulnerable narcissist draws you in by gaining your sympathy, your pity, your attention, your help, your resources, but they're just as entitled as the grandiose narcissist. Their entitlement just looks a little bit different. A grandiose narcissist entitlement is like, "World, look how great I am." You know, they walk into a room and, you know, their their presence and their energy is there before they are. But a vulnerable narcissist can look very down, depressed, withdrawn. They tend to be more introverted, not as social, more anxious, or they can actually look, you know, quite sullen and withdrawn or very nice at times. Sometimes they can come across as just like super nice. I know for for me, some of the narcissists I've dealt with, the more vulnerable narcissists that I was with seemed really nice at first. Like it was a breath of fresh air. But over time, I started to see the entitlement coming out.
0: It's, and that's what I think is interesting is you, you're highlighting it there. It's, it's deceptive in the sense that you don't even realize mm-hmm. you're engaging with a narcissist. And, and I think, and to be honest, Chelsea, I, I saw points in myself where I was a vulnerable narcissist. Mm-hmm. I was wounded. I had not yet healed. And I was using the people around me to get the attention and the validation mm-hmm. that I needed. And you know, I I was needy. I was, I I could, I I knew that I was taking from individuals, friends, relationships, partners. And so it was, it was an interesting thing for me to realize one, how much progress I've made and and recognizing that narcissism Mm -hmm. is also a scale. I think we, we, we have these big ideas as we were talking about the top of the show, that narcissism is, is this grandiose component, but there's all of us have components of narcissism in some way, right? I think like maybe a little bit, maybe not all of us, but there's a mm-hmm. scale of it that we can, and, and depending on the environment you grew up in. And I think that's what really for me, growing up in the home that I did, I learned a lot of these behaviors and I didn't know what was healthy. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I really, that I was reading in your book is, and I know that's later in the book, but is not knowing what mm-hmm. is healthy or not. And and I think it's understanding that these things can manifest mm-hmm. in many ways. And one of the things that I love about your work is trusting yourself, L- learning to lean into who you are and trusting yourself. But anyway, I want to get ahead because the the way the structure of your book is mm-hmm. broken into three parts, I think it's great. You focus on the 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 traits of narcissism, the types of narcissism or narcissist, but then you move through, you know, working on yourself, healing, and then understanding the dynamic. Yeah. Where do you go from there? And so it's, You got to see it first, right? And this is where we are, I think, in our conversation is recognizing some of these things.
1: Well, I would would love to touch on the part where we all have narcissistic traits, because I think that's actually something that's a common misconception when people start to to hear this. And I don't know about for you in your case, but I know a lot of people look at it and say, well, I've been entitled sometimes or, you know, I've kind of been in a point in my life where I needed that external validation and I really should have been, you know, providing that more for myself or had more character or integrity in that situation. So yes, narcissism is a personality trait that exists on a spectrum. So you can be a little narcissistic to highly narcissistic, but it's those predictable patterns of behavior over time. So you wouldn't call someone an introvert just because they Mm. decided to stay in once on a Friday night. You can't call someone a narcissist just because they acted defensively once in the last six months. And so I think that's where people get a little bit Mm. hung up. It's like narcissists are the ones you consistently have difficulty with. They are consistently high conflict. Rigid in their thinking, antagonistic, victimized, vindictive, entitled, emotionally dysregulated. So it's not like a one off or a time or a season in your life where maybe you're going through something and you're a little bit, you know, quote, more needy or seeking validation during that time. That doesn't just make you a narcissist per se. That means you're going through a period of time where you're acting a bit more selfish and entitled. But a narcissist is someone who's displaying those patterns consistently. Over time, in different environments, and it's and it's pervasive. Meaning, it's kind of, it's in every area of their life for a considerable amount of time. Mm
0: Hmm. Well, I guess putting it like that, the the the, even the example that I shared earlier, that was a these were points in my life. They weren't. So I think that's a good that's a great point to bring up because we could be going through situations or even challenging situations because a lot of that was drawn by prompted by my healing and. I wasn't like my feelings and and self wasn't Mm -hmm. acknowledged growing up. So I had to learn those things. And to your point, I think there was a period in my life where I was going kind of swinging the other direction to where Mm -hmm. I was trying to protect myself, heal myself. And I think that isn't necessarily the undercurrent of someone's behavior over time. That's the more important thing. Well, and one thing that I thought was really interesting too about your work is the lack of Mm -hmm. self reflection and how that contributes to this underlying current of narcissism and the way others treat ourselves mm-hmm. and other people and friends and all of that. And I'd never, I'd never thought about that before in the way that you presented it. And I'm like, wow, that was kind of the light bulb moment because you go, wait, okay. I get the lack of self-reflection. Reflection takes yeah. humility. It takes patience. It takes compassion. And those are a lot of they things that have. narcissists don't typically they don't have. have. Right? Yeah.
1: And that's why <laughs> Some people kind of end up feeling bad for narcissists. And and in a way, it is a sad plight. Like, they don't self-reflect. They project, meaning they don't take the time to think about how their words and actions are impacting others. So they just project, you know, their issues onto other people. And then they, so if any of the problems or difficulties or struggles they're having in their life, they don't see the impact their behaviors have had that perhaps have contributed to that. They only see your reaction to them so they don't self reflect they project so they're like no you're antagonistic and you're selfish and you're being critical but you're probably you know in a spot where you've been reacting to what what they're doing how they've been been acting but they don't see their part in it i know for me and some of in some of my relationships like that was the biggest struggle with the some of the narcissists that i had been in a romantic relationship with was the lack of self reflection because you hit that wall you hit the ceiling where there's some progress. There might be some growth in my, this particular situation. They were a sex addict as well. So there was like maybe some acknowledgement of that or some growth. But then we would hit a point where the narcissistic piece took over and like it prevented any more healing. This particular individual got to a point where they were mm-hmm. like, nope, I don't want any more help. Like this is annoying. Stop asking me. Stop checking in on me. I don't want to do this therapy thing anymore. Like I'm done. And so the narcissism piece just really keeps them stuck and keeps them from being able to to heal like you have talked about.
0: Well, and it seems to come down to that lack of responsibility. And when I think back to my childhood and, and the things that I had to unwind for myself was taking responsibility, like not taking responsibility mm-hmm. for me, well, was taking responsibility, but also taking responsibility for the people around me's emotions, their well-being, their moods. Mm. And that was a part of it with my my mom. I love her. We still like we have a dynamic that we're working through. Yeah. She's trying now as she's gotten older, which is great. And we've gotten closer over the years. But it's when I was young, that was a challenge. Like I took on a lot of that burden of hers mm. because I was raised by her and I was very empathetic and I didn't recognize the responsibility piece that each of us are responsible for our thoughts, our emotions, mm-hmm. our feelings. And when we own that responsibility, that's what allows us to, to meet in the middle and work through our challenges. But what you just said, the ceiling that narcissists run up against is their inability to not only reflect, but then take responsibility right. for their actions, right? Because once they do that, they're now admitting that there's flaws, there's kind of mm-hmm. chinks in their armor and the whole illusion starts to fall. And that simply is too painful, I think, for them to accept. Is that part of do yeah, you think that's the, part of the it?
1: The core of narcissism is built around this insecure ego. And so everything that is built off of their personality is to protect that insecure ego. Even even the grandiose narcissists, like, you know, truly confident people don't have to put others down. But grandiose narcissists are constantly in that comparison mm. game and in seeing the world in a very competitive place. So once you have that insecure ego. But you're not willing to address it. You create all these defense mechanisms, these really rigid protective strategies, to protect that inner core. So you can't handle shame. You can't handle that. You know, mm-hmm. guilt that that leads to positive change. Narcissists get stuck in this shame rage cycle. Where if you're like a mild to moderate narcissist, then you do experience some guilt, like you care about the image, you care about how things look, and you really don't like being called out. So for example, if you're a narcissist and you've cheated on your spouse, like you know that that's not a good look. And if your spouse finds out or calls it out, then you may, that narcissist will experience a little bit of, of shame around that of like, oh, this doesn't look good for me. Not guilt like, oh, I did something bad. Like I really feel for this and I need to take a hard look at myself. It's, oh, this isn't a good look. Like no one you know, wants to look like a cheater, but because they can't handle that shame and, and move it into something that's productive, they go in the shame rage cycle. Now they become, they turn it around on you. The projection, the blame shifting, you know, you're so controlling or I wouldn't have had to do that if you would have done this and they make everything about you and how you haven't been there for them or how the relationship hasn't been good or they just more than likely deny the whole thing altogether, even if you have proof.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you said that too, Chelsea, because what I've come to realize is so much of this, we, we have this idea that people, narcissists love themselves, <laughs> they're obsessed with themselves, but really right. they're obsessed with their image and this idea of who they are. They actually don't have any sense of yeah. a true self because at least from what I understand, because when you do, when you have that true self, you're yeah. anchored in that. And so if someone comes to me and says, you're a mm-hmm. jerk or you're mean, or you're dishonest, I know that that's not who I am because of the way that I operate on a day to day basis, the way that I treat people. I can look at myself and say, actually, that's not true. And to be honest, Chelsea, I've had relationships with narcissists reflecting back where they Mm -hmm. said terrible things to me. And as I was going through my journey, I started to recognize, wait a second, just because someone says that to you Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's true or right or they're on point. And I think that's part of it, too, is because caring people who want to support and love another person when someone that they care about tells them, oh, you're mean or your life is stupid or your hobbies are dumb or the way you dress is stupid, like I hate your friends. Yeah. And you care about that person. You start to think, well, maybe they are. Maybe I do dress like an idiot or maybe my hobbies are dumb. But what you once you start to love yourself and you realize, relo- <laughs> wait a second, hold up. Wait a second. I know this about myself. Is that true? I'm kind to people. I follow through with the things I say. So, But without that strength of self, it's really hard to navigate situations like that, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And like you said, narcissists are obsessed with their image because they are who their image is. So they don't really have to be good to feel good about themselves. They just have to look good. And if that's where your focus is, Mm -hmm. what people see, what people think, then all of their energy is focused on what other people think of them, like maintaining if it's if it's a grandiose narcissist, you know, maintaining this very successful, productive, great image. And as long as they're getting feedback from the world that they're being perceived in that way, then they can maintain that grandiose vision of themselves or that image of themselves. And so that's also part of the struggle is because narcissists do put so much effort into their image, whereas a healthy person is actually more concerned about what's going on behind the scenes. Like, yeah, we kind of all care how we're perceived in a way, but for a healthy person, you're concerned that how you come across to others is who you are. Like, you want that um, that connection. Like, you don't want to be one person at home and another person out and about. Like, you want that to match. If you're a kind person at one place, you want to be a kind person in another place. But narcissists genuinely don't care what people don't know. So they're putting so much mm-hmm. effort into their image that they are able to convince a lot of people that they are the image, that they are nice, kind, successful, caring, unassuming. And then the people who are closest to the narcissist are often the ones that are devalued the most. That's where we get into this, you know, concept of narcissistic abuse and why it's so harmful because the world gets one image. You get the real, you know, version of the narcissist at home where they're critical and contemptuous and belittling, but no one else is seeing that, of course. Then, You're even more isolated from being able to explain to people what's going on, A, because you don't know, and B, because even if you did tell other people, they don't see the narcissist in that way.
0: Which, and you're you're running up against that story, and I think that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation, because not enough of of us are aware of Mm -hmm. the qualities and the way narcissism can manifest in people and the way it can change. I mean, honestly, when you're describing those things, the image component, the lack of self-reflection, I think about (laughs) politicians (laughs) and celebrities and and regardless of what political side you may fall on or none, frankly, I I don't associate with any of it anymore. But Mm -hmm. you see that and you realize like some of the most narcissistic people, I think, in our society are also the ones driving our laws and our culture in Hollywood and politics. And it's very dangerous and toxic. And I think that's not an accident because they're portraying this image of who they are. And and private, to your point, I mean, you hear about some of these things that happen, but I don't think people realize the level of depravity that exists in our society that's hidden Mm -hmm. behind these masks. And that's why learning about these things are so crucial. And to your point earlier, if you're a kind, loving person, the goal is to match who we are both behind right. closed doors and in public, as much as we possibly can, mm-hmm. you want that gap to be none, so that you're consistent everywhere. That for me is my aim: is to be the same than I am everywhere, behind closed doors, privately, right. public, whatever. But that takes effort, and mm-hmm. it's good work, right? But man, we're we're a we're kind of a, a long way away from a lot of that with the way our, There's our society a reason, presents itself. Yeah,
1: that we get so much push pushback when we talk about narcissism because we kind of live in a narcissistic culture like we talk about business or organiza- organizations like you said or politics like we put a lot of emphasis on what things look like and this is why leaders we, we ask people generally what do you think of when you think of a good leader like someone who's charming and can work a room and isn't necessarily the one who's doing the most work but is the one who looks like they're doing the most work or who's able to get enough people like on their side or to get support narcissists especially grandiose narcissists appear very confident and you know people are drawn to confidence like we think that oh well they know what they're doing or or you know they're they have good ideas here so we kind of naturally go that way and we don't think well what about empathy and what about kindness and what about compassion? You know, more of, of those values like you're talking about.
0: Yeah, that I, I'm certainly pushing to create more of a, a society in that sense. But the, the way in my mind, the way we go about doing that is we lead by example. Mm-hmm. We live true to those values. We, we show people those values. We honor that way of living, which takes time. But we, we do have an uphill yeah. battle, I think, from that perspective, because it's 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 still kind of crazy to me how people, when you when you list the characteristics of a leader, they still Mm -hmm. do kind of those superficial components, which have been around for a long time. I think something, Chelsea, too, that would be great is when we first initially talked and you talked about this in your your book, too, is the the MPP, which is can you can you explore what's that acronym again? Narcissistic Um,
1: Personality Disorder. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There we go. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like 6% of the population, supposedly, which is roughly 20 million. Which is scary to say. (laughs) Which doesn't seem like a
1: lot, but it actually is. Yeah. So a recent study, yeah, showed that NPD narcissistic personality disorder has a lifetime prevalence rate of 6%. So according to the U.S. population, that's about 20 million people. If you consider that those 20 million narcissists negatively impact five other people throughout their lifetime, which is really a very conservative estimate, then there will be 99 million narcissistic abuse survivors in the U.S. alone. So narcissism really is affecting millions and millions of people all over the world. Like, this is an epidemic. This is not a small thing that's happening where, honestly, I think we all will know a narcissist at some point in our life, at least one that would cause enough damage. Like, you don't have to be diagnosed with NPD to cause damage because, like we talked about, narcissism exists on a spectrum. So you may be, you know, dealing with someone who's never been diagnosed because that's going to take them going to a mental health professional, actually telling the truth, like getting that diagnosis. So to me, I think it's less relevant, the debate of, well, do they meet, you know, criteria for NPD or we can't call them a narcissist because we can't diagnose. Well, you're not. If you can call someone agreeable, conscientious, extroverted, you can call them narcissistic because narcissism is a personality style. And a trait, not a diagnosis.
0: Hmm, That's interesting. See, and I think that's why understanding Mm -hmm. the different types that you've laid out in your book are helpful too. Because, like we said at the beginning, we think about narcissism in in this one specific way, but there's there's a variety of ways that narcissists can manifest themselves. And I think one of the ones that was interesting to me Mm -hmm. first, the vulnerable one, is. I've absolutely been in relationships with vulnerable narcissists. That was very I mean, I have people in my family that mm-hmm. reflect that type of narcissism. But the a few of the others, the 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 more Can social, you know? the like the giving I, and I'm I'm I have them written down and I'm was totally it the
1: communal narcissist.
0: Exactly. There's a communal and then there's the there's the other that's also very similar, not communal but maybe it is the vulnerable, but I I think from the the traits of giving and being charitable and Mm -hmm. which i think is the communal isn't it that's where but so we don't realize again the image piece to me and the lack of self-reflection are what create this this dynamic and and i think the sad thing is the tragedy of it all is it's built around that there there's no true connection to who they really are there's no true self which is where this comes from and so the the narcissistic supply yeah. that they need to get from the world, that's why these types are so prevalent. So could we talk yeah. a little bit about those six yeah, types, Chelsea, sure. if that's okay?
1: So I talked about the grandiose, that typical narcissist we think of, the vulnerable that can appear very sad and sullen or very nice, but is equally antagonistic and entitled. There's the communal that you were touching on. These are the humanitarians, philanthropists, and do-gooders of the world. They want to be seen as endlessly giving, self-sacrificial, like this is the mom who's at every bake sale, every fundraiser, every school event, but at home is critical and contemptuous to her kids. It's the leader of the nonprofit who you think just does all this good work and is so amazing, or they're posting these movie star quality selfies of their Saturday morning, volunteering at the local soup kitchen or volunteering at the animal shelter, but at home or with those closest to them, They're just as antagonistic and critical because even though these things are good, they're not giving their efforts to these causes for the sake of doing good. They're doing it for the validation and attention they expect to receive because of it. And if they don't get that, then they will be sullen, withdrawn, and lash out at those closest to them. So they're only, you know, doing these things if they can do it in front of a group of people and get that validation or that validation and recognition that, oh, you're such a giving, kind person, or if they can document it and share it later.
0: And and Chelsea, that's the narcissistic supply Mm -hmm. component that you identified in the book that was also a new concept to me is that validation, that perspective, that image that they're showing the world that is the supply that a narcissist needs to gain to make them feel good about who they are, right? So that's why they do that. Not because of good, they want to do good, but because they want to appear to be virtual. Yeah, I kind of
1: like parallel narcissistic supply and a healthy person's self-esteem. Like we're talking about healthy people want to build self-esteem by having their words and actions match, by, you know, being who they say they are, like so that they're a consistent person in every place. Narcissists don't so much care how they look in different environments, if who they are at home is who they are outside. They just care that they're seen in a particular way. And then the different narcissistic types kind of look for supply a little bit differently. The communal narcissists want to be viewed as that endlessly giving, you know, self-sacrificial kind of person. And as long as they're getting that attention and validation from other people, like, yes, you're so giving and you're so charitable. And it's like, They draw people in because people often feel lucky to be with them romantically or to be around them because you think, oh, I'm just around this person who's so good and so giving and so involved in this charitable work or or in their community. And, you know, people often feel lucky like to be around them. And so for the communal narcissist, that's the narcissistic supply they're looking for.
0: See, and I was just and I love that you said that because I've interacted with people like I live in California for almost a decade. And like there are a lot of people in California that reflect that. I had a I had a guest on early on, Andrew Daniel. He does coaching work, similar work. He he called that the spiritualized mm. ego, where it's basically you're you're it's a similar thing, but you're presenting this very spiritualized, giving personality to the world. Another one, the other one that I was thinking of, too, which I had not recognized Uh, was the self-righteous narcissist and that is another one very prevalent (laughs) in California but is was one that for me helped a lot recognizing I think some of the people and Mm -hmm. and relationships that I've had in my life not necessarily romantic ones but Mm -hmm. people that I've struggled with and and honestly Chelsea I've interacted with people lately and I'm like I I couldn't figure out I'll talk to somebody and then I'll feel. I'm like, what? I just talked to this person for an hour, and I can't even put yeah. what happened. And that's—we'll talk a little bit about that because I think that's important. Because I want to get into not honestly, not just identifying them, but recognizing mm-hmm. the symptoms in ourselves, mm-hmm. the signs in ourselves. But so, let's talk a little bit of, if we can about the self-righteous narcissist and and get through yeah. a few more of the the yeah. personality so the self-righteous types. If we can
1: Narciss- narcissist is really rigid, controlling, hypermoralistic. They you know, do care a lot about what other people think, they tend to be very active in religious spaces, nonprofit organizations, because those places allow them to espouse their hypocritical views in politically correct ways. They really get their narcissistic supply from being seen as just so put together, so organized, and they become hyper-focused on perfecting, kind of obsessively, on whatever it is that they think is the most important thing, whether it's their fitness, what they look like, how, you know, Cleanly keep their house, or how their towels are organized, whatever it is, they become, you know, fixated on that, and they want to get the validation from people that they are being seen in just such a. They're so organized. They're so on time. They're so whatever. Great in that particular area, and when you're dealing with a self righteous narcissist, you end up feeling like you're living in a glass box. Like you feel so self conscious Mm -hmm. being around them because. They constantly have this kind of like they're looking down on anything that doesn't match their standard. And so you feel particularly criticized. Sure. You do around any narcissist, but for these types especially, you, you literally can never measure up. And just the amount of hypervigilance and self-consciousness that you feel in these relationships, because you know they're judging, critiquing everything you do, what you wear, you know, how you look. I've had some experiences with these types of narcissists as well in romantic relationships and it's so awful on your self-esteem as a partner because they're literally judging everything you do like every move you make every angle and everything that you look like at least for me that's what my self-righteous narcissist was was focused on was outward appearance and so literally I felt like I just needed to almost be like a mannequin like I didn't need to move too much like I was so hyper aware of how I looked in every angle and it was exhausting and it was awful because that is not me. But that's how you feel dealing with these types.
0: And that's that's where the the discombobulation of yeah. yourself happens over time. Like it and it erodes away at yourself. Just what you were describing, you're now on edge mm-hmm. 24-7, mindful of how you're presenting yourself, mindful of the way you're mm-hmm. talking, mindful of the way you look, mindful of the things you say. And the thing is, is They'll never say something publicly. If they do, it's yeah, that passive aggressive, mm-hmm. backhanded comments. But then when you get home, they, mm-hmm. you get grilled on how stupid you are. Why would you make us look this way? You look foolish. I look foolish. It's always, and I think it's important to note too, is it comes back to them and the way that yeah. they are feeling. We, we internalize these things, which is, the, it's easy for caring, yeah. loving people to do. When you're honest, you want to take what they say as, as, oh, okay. Again, maybe I'm doing this. Maybe I am this or that, but it's, I think it's so important, Chelsea. And this is what I appreciate about your work is our feelings. We know when you're in a loving relationship, a healthy relationship, you say this, you don't have to question it. You know that somebody's there for you. You get a sense of them being there for you when you need them. And they have your back. They follow through with the things they say. So if you're, if you're, If you've been in a relationship and you're constantly second-guessing yourself, that's probably an indicator that something's off, right?
1: The first red flag we're usually consciously aware of in a toxic or narcissistic relationship is changes in your thinking. Stuff starts just not adding up. You are giving way more mental and emotional energy to trying to figure out this person or this relationship than anything else. You end up doing a lot of rumination. And I think rumination gets a bad rap because it takes so much of our energy and it can cause a lot of anxiety, but we ruminate for a reason. You ruminate because things don't make sense, and that's why I'm a big believer in having a different view on triggers instead of disliking triggers or like like rumination or anxiety. like Triggers validate your reality. They prove what you went through was real because you wouldn't ruminate if it weren't confusing. You wouldn't feel hypervigilant if you weren't around someone harmful, and so yeah, a lot of the The cognitive dissonance, like the fact that this person's words and actions don't match up, like that adds to a lot of the rumination that ends up happening. For example, if you're married to someone, like you're saying, you expect to be able to rely on, communicate with, receive love and support from them. But when you're married to someone and your spouse is critical or contemptuous or makes you question your reality all the time, like getting into that gaslighting then we're uncomfortable with the anxiety that arises from that mismatch between our expectations and reality. So then we start justifying or rationalizing this person's bad or difficult behaviors, thinking things like, they probably didn't mean it, they're just really stressed at work, they had a bad day. So you'll say something like, yeah, I'm married to someone, but they don't really mean it. And so you're making those excuses to try to deal with the confusion that is happening. So that's usually the first sign you're aware of that something in this relationship is not right.
0: See, that's great, and and that's so. And we're going to dive a little deeper into mm-hmm. the different signals too that come up because I think that's very important to recognize. And I love that. I, I don't think I don't love it. It's it's I love it in the yeah. sense it's important to recognize these pieces. That's the thing. Oh, oh, but it's tough because caring people will a lot of times, particularly if they come from abusive backgrounds or neglectful backgrounds. They'll just dismiss those feelings because that's what they've learned. That's become normal. But there's two more types of narcissists before we move forward, and that's the neglectful narcissist Mm -hmm. and the malignant narcissist, right? I think we've covered the other four so with
1: the, The malignant narcissist, when you think about that spectrum of narcissism, they're all the way on the high end. They are like a cousin to the psychopath. The malignant narcissist is said to be the pinnacle of the dark triad, the point at which Narcissism, psychopathy, mm. and Machiavellianism, which is that singular focus on power, all collide. So they are sadistic, very controlling. They can come across as like a bit like grandiose narcissists at first because they do tend to be quite charming and charismatic, but they have a more intense and sinister feel to them. And they, their narcissistic supply not only comes from controlling you, but they actually take pleasure in your pain because they see you know, your pain as proof of their power. Like, I, I'm able to hurt you. I'm mm-hmm. able to have control over you. They are focused on dominance and superiority or being superior over someone else. And so they're the scary ones. They're the ones who are the CEOs who are, have been embezzling millions with no regard for who it's you know negatively impacting. They're the spouse who fights for custody of the kids, not because they care about the kids, but literally just to hurt you because they know that that will harm you. Or the serial cheaters who just have no regard for the impact this is having on you. And so these are the ones that people are kind of scared of. Like they really aren't sure if they leave this relationship what this person will do. Because malignant narcissists can also be quite kind of obsessive and controlling. They can track people. They... They use a lot of coercive control tactics like intimidation, threats, humiliation, kind of like they let you know that they know where you are and what you're doing and you don't know how or why. So there's those subtle threats where you're like, how do they know I had that conversation? How do they know where I was? And they don't tell you. And so you really start to wonder, how far will this person go if I leave? So they can be very scary.
0: Chelsea, we actually had a friend in college. My buddy and I had a friend in college that was just like that. Very, like, on the border. Like, we were friends, but then things started getting weird and we started setting boundaries. And then over time, he started sending these weird text messages and calls about seeing where we were and looking in Mm -hmm. our cars. And it it really gives you this sense of, like, this is unsafe like it was honestly it was more my buddy Mm -hmm. that he was doing this for because they were not closer but they had more of the relationship so but anyway my point is is it can get dangerous if you're not careful and that's i think the malignant narcissist is also the 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 dictators and the large kind of that type of personality right like when we think of that but yeah it can manifest in small ways they can be like the
1: surgeons they can make (laughs) They can be good in certain situations, like in, in, well, I don't say good, but they do handle stressful situations quite well. Like their nervous system is a bit different. Like they just don't have the same, they don't respond to stress or fear in the same way that other people do.
0: It's, yeah. And I think it's funny because I know I get the sense of a surgeon can be that skill set to not be as responsive to stress can be a good thing, but it can also go awry very quickly if they're not reflective. and. And I think for me, something that's been is the reflective component, the counter to narcissism in so many ways mm-hmm. is self-reflection, learning about ourselves, trusting ourselves and, and learning to do more of that, which we're going to get into a bit here. But the last one, though, which I didn't realize the neglectful narcissist and and much of my experience growing up mm-hmm. w- was a lot of that. It was the just the the I mean, full on neglect. It was basically your emotions and yeah. needs are a burden, and therefore, I'm just going to basically discard you in a lot of ways. And and, and so, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, on Yeah, I definitely wanted to include
1: the the neglectful narcissist in my book because it's one that's overlooked. It has the most understated like love bomb or idealized phase in that narcissistic cycle of abuse. Like they don't do a lot to to get you into the relationship if it's an adult relationship. You tend to get with a neglectful narcissist because it makes sense. They like follow the same religion that you're looking for that's important in your family, kind of for practical reasons. But those who are in romantic relationships with a neglectful narcissist don't feel like they had a love-bombing phase, an idealized phase. It's very understated. And so that's the type of narcissist that's really overlooked because it has all the same core traits, grandiosity, entitlement, superficiality, but there's not that... Charm or charisma. At home, interestingly, I can totally relate to that because my dad is more of a neglectful narcissist. There was just that emotional coldness, neglect. Like there just, there wasn't a lot of anything there. When you're with these kind of people, you you feel like you're a ghost. You feel invisible over time. Like, yeah, you're in the house, but it's like an ongoing silent treatment. It's it's emotionally neglectful. There's there's just nothing there. Like you don't get to have the fight. You don't get to have the discussion, they just really completely overlook you. And so that can be particularly painful in its own way because you don't understand why there's just nothing there. You feel very hollow when you're around those kind of people.
0: It's honestly, I know we just talked about malignant narcissists and their sadistic nature and how bad it can be, but neglectful narcissism in a lot of ways, is is far is mm-hmm. it's deeply cruel with when you factor in the silent treatment, the disc, just like mm-hmm. you said, the ghost component. I mean, honestly, I, I'm learning about my wife and things that she's experienced and and the relationships that she's had growing up. She grew up in California. There was there was just this that that disconnect, mm-hmm. that silent treatment component. That's silent treatment is is so cruel because at least when you fight, you know what's happening, mm-hmm. and there's like a response. But silent treatment could be anything and you have no idea. And then if you care, you internalize it. And and that's so much what happens. We blame ourselves. We think that we're wrong. I'm a burden. I'm, I'm too much. I'm all of these things. Yeah. We justify, right? We go in this justification cycle. It it's is. very and sad. Be-
1: because that person is not acknowledging you at all, you... You feel that having needs isn't even safe. Like having your own emotions isn't even safe. It's not even okay. So you do disconnect from your own sense of self, like your own thoughts, your own feelings, because you learn that they're irrelevant, essentially, in that kind of relationship. And so all of your attention goes to this other person, like outside of yourself. What's the emotional temperature of the room? What do they need from me? And you slowly over time just disconnect more and more from yourself because it's not even safe to like explore. Your own thoughts and feelings. And you don't even feel like that's an option if you're a child growing up in this situation. You just know that my feelings and needs are irrelevant. I'm here for what this other person needs for me.
0: That I when I learned that, I read Alice mm-hmm. Miller's the drama of the gift to child. And that's effectively what what she describes is is dealing with kind of the neglectful component of things and not even realizing that having feelings is a thing yeah. that normal and healthy people do. Like that that you're even like to have thoughts and feelings of yeah. your own is actually okay it's It's wonderful, and I think it's great, too, what you mentioned earlier, and then we can get into the the well i I love the piece that you talked about cognitive mm-hmm. versus affective empathy, so we can touch on that And <laughs> I, I have so many notes, chelsea from your book it's it's crazy. I want to get because I'm just trying to make sure we get through as much as we can in the, in the from your book here, but the because that's interesting again to me—the cognitive mm-hmm. versus effective empathy—and really, again, but it's more about presentation. It seems to me like the the presentation mm-hmm. of empathy, and they've cognitive empathy is basically learning what empathy looks like, right, and then displaying it. Versus effective empathy is actually yeah, caring that's about where, people. No, you're right. Or am I flipping? Yeah, some it?
1: people get confused, especially with like the communal narcissists or the ones who do do appear giving and who do seem to care about outside influences like world hunger or nonprofits or being involved in their church or community. So you, if you're in that relationship with that that person, their nar- that narcissist, you really get confused because you think, "But they do care about these different things. Like they volunteer at the animal shelter or they care about this, you know, nonprofit thing that's going on in the community." But there's a difference between cognitive and affective empathy. So cognitive empathy is being able to intellectually understand things you should care about or problems people have, and kind of like from a, from a distance, you're like, oh, that's sad. Cognitive empathy is just having the, the intellectual ability to go, oh, that must be a difficult situation, but you're not really emotionally attached to it. Affective empathy is what we're really usually meaning when we say empathy. You have a genuine feeling for that person. You can imagine what it would be like to be in that situation, and you feel sad like you feel connected and your your heart kind of hurts for what that other person is going through or for that situation so just because a narcissist looks like they care about something else or even looks like they care about friends sometimes my clients will be like they're so good to their friends but they're awful to me as the spouse and I'm like yeah but for their friends they get to look like the hero like their friends need something and the narcissist is like I'll call you or I'll be there I'll pick you up They're getting supply from that. It's not like that person is really requiring emotional depth or intimacy or consistency from them like a partner would. So even in that, I found it to be like, just because they look like they care about something, you also have to ask, what are they gaining from that? What are they benefiting from it? Because that's a big difference between actually having affective empathy towards something.
0: And I I think the the narcissistic, narcissistic supply component is so important to recognize and learn about because it when you start to understand that they lack an internal supply, which is what happens when we mm-hmm. have a healthy connection to who we are, we have self-esteem, we have confidence. This is what I built over time with myself is an right. internal supply. It used to be external, right? And you get all that, because, but that's the healthy piece. But once you start to realize Mm -hmm. that that's the disconnect is that a narcissist needs that supply to come from everyone else, you can start to make sense of (laughs) why they're kind to their friends or doing the things that they're doing, because it's not Mm -hmm. really even about their friends. It's just about getting what they need. And that's the danger of it, because it can be confusing. And I think this is a great segue into Mm -hmm. the cycle of abuse that narcissists typically perpetuate in their relationships, because the the first state. Mm -hmm. Is idolize, right? Which is also known as love bombing. And I think that's an example of helping your friends as an idealistic way yeah. that they're using that, right? Or, or am I getting a little, yeah, little mixed totally up happen. there with that?
1: So the nurse's cycle of abuse, just to take a wide angle view first, is idealize, devalue, discard, hoover. So in that idealized, that love bombing phase, let's say it's a romantic partner. This is when the infatuation happens. There's intensity. The relationship often moves really quickly. You feel that, you know, you're spending all your time together. You've moved in together quite quickly. Like there's there's an intensity usually to narcissistic love bombing. And then as soon as you kind of get in that state and you think, oh, I'm getting to know this person, we're creating memories, we're making plans for our life. Like, I think this is my soulmate. I'm so glad I met them. Then that's when the devalue starts to happen. They push, they start to pull back. Things go from hot to cold. And you're like, what happened here? Like, what is this change? And then you try desperately to get it back and thinking, oh, well, maybe we need to spend more time together. Or maybe they got distracted with something else. Or, So you you try really hard to get their attention back. You feel like all their attention was on you and then all of a sudden it got taken somewhere else. And so then you start trying really hard to get that back. You do more. You give more. You're more patient. All the while the narcissist is is devaluing you at this point. They're criticizing you more. They're not showing up. They're being inconsistent. You're starting to realize that, oh, this life I thought we were building together and what was happening or what we were going to be together it's it's not happening. So that's where all that cognitive dissonance and confusion starts to come in. And then there's the discard, and that can happen in a couple different ways. Some narcissists emotionally discard you, so they'll stay in the relationship, but they'll act in ways that are highly disrespectful to emotionally discard you. Cheating on you multiple times, betraying you, lying to you, making decisions that impact you but not discussing it with you, like taking a job where you have to move somewhere else and not discussing it with you, or they could physically discard by leaving the relationship. And finally, the hoover stage is, has a couple of different options as well. Some narcissists will hoover and try to, essentially that's a love-bombing 2.0. They try to get you back in the relationship or they try to keep open communication with you even if they have a new partner because knowing that you'll talk to them is a source of narcissistic supply. Like, oh, my ex still talks to me even though I'm in this new relationship. Like They, they kind of like to collect supply. So they may be hoovering you that way. Some narcissists don't hoover, and that may be because they go off on a new relationship and they're just completely distracted with it. And that cycle is from beginning to end of the relationship, but it also happens throughout the relationship. Like, it can literally happen within a day, week, or month. And I think that's that's a really important point for people to get is you can have a great day together on Saturday. Be you know, disrespected and devalued on Sunday. Then you are discarded on Monday because they won't talk to you. They're giving you the silent treatment. And Tuesday you're brought flowers and then they say sorry. And like, it is so confusing how quickly it can go from hot to cold and you don't know why and you don't know how to make it stop and you don't know what's happening. That's part of why these relationships are so damaging.
0: It's wild and and Chelsea, I've been in relationships where that cycle has happened yeah. in in the same day. You go out <laughs> and you have a great dinner, two hours with some friends, and then you're in the Uber rides to the next spot, yeah, and it all goes to hell, and you get there and it and and then you're all through this, but because it's important to recognize that that is a cycle, not just this over the right. period of a relationship that can happen a variety of ways. And as I was learning and reading your book, I'm like, man, I wish I had known this many years ago, because it's that's why it's important to recognize these things, because yes. patterns, you start to see patterns. And and it's the hoovering. I assume you call it hoovering that's because it. basically they're that's trying to suck you from. back yep. into the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> that's yep. Cause, yeah, because and that's what it feels like you. There's the the love bombing. And, you know, it's interesting, Chelsea, when I was younger, I would do that in relationships. Mm -hmm. I would actually love bomb. And I didn't know that I was doing this again, you know, and the level of the scale component is there. But this is why reflection is so important. We can see our shortcomings. And I learned that was me doing the nice guy thing, presenting an Mm -hmm. idea of what I thought women wanted in relationships. I had to learn that that's not the case. It wasn't until I started embracing who I truly was. I started presenting all of what I am. And I started to let the cards fall where they may. If you don't like my sensitivity or the way that I share, then that's not a good fit instead of trying to yeah. change ourselves. So it, it really does come back to connecting with who we truly are, living authentic to who we are, and honoring ourselves mm-hmm. from within, mm-hmm. doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And in that situation, you know, I think we – and this could be a whole nother topic, honestly, but our nervous systems get used to being in relationships in certain ways. So if you grew up in a house that's chaotic or neglectful or dysfunctional in some way, then you get used to the hot and cold. And then you think that's how the relationships are supposed to go. And, and not that you're being narcissistic or a narcissist, but you're used to that hot and cold. I'll say, like for me, it felt very familiar to me to have to try to prove myself and to try to be good enough in relationships. So I was not you know, the one that was creating this this love bombing or the narcissistic cycle of abuse with the narcissist I was with. But I, my nervous system was used to that because I had not had really healthy romantic relationships at that point. So when I started dating, I was very used to having a few good times, but then a problem would happen and we'd have to work on the problem. We had to work really hard on the problem. We'd have to talk about it. We had to talk about it some more and I would have to try to be better and I have to try to get them to see something like I always thought we're just one inside away from making all of this work. And there's an endless amount of information. And I've always been me. And I've always been like, I'll read. I'll do the things. I mean, obviously, I'm a therapist. So I was all into the personal development. So I thought we can figure this out. We can make this work. And so then it would get a little bit better. But then the problems would steep in again. Like there would be more betrayals. I would find out about the things they weren't telling me, inconsistencies. Then I would address it again and think, okay, it's good now. We're good. But then good for a little bit, something would happen again. And so, you know, we kind of have to wonder too, like, and that's why in my book I talk about what environment did you grow up in? Because if you grew up in a kind of chaotic, dysfunctional, you know, environment, then you're used to what a narcissistic relationship feels like, the hot and cold, the up and down. And so you actually have to learn how to regulate yourself in a healthy way so that you can then attract and get into and feel more comfortable in healthy relationships yourself.
0: And, and that's exactly what I ended up doing. And I, I really appreciate you sharing it that way, because I, I know that there are people out there mm-hmm. that can relate to that experience, to where they grew up in a, in a certain type of environment with their family. They didn't realize that it was toxic or right. unhealthy and out of balance. And you have to learn these behaviors because you talk about mm-hmm. that too, mirroring. If we don't have healthy mirroring from our parents or parental, you know, the adults in our life, we are going to learn unhealthy things. And that's ultimately, we go on and repeat those cycles. And so that's why this work is so important too, is we break the cycle of abuse when we see what's happening and then we learn these behaviors differently and we make the changes in our life. That's that's the power of it. But it's, it's so, and this being caught in these cycles and it's mm-hmm. such a common thing. It's because... Chelsea, you said it. I I did a whole episode on, on our narcissistic mm-hmm. society. Like I'm when you look at our culture, it's pretty damn narcissistic. And so you're countering our culture in a lot of ways by learning these things, which is important. But you don't know Stop. that because you look around and you're like, well, I mean, this is kind yeah. of what everything is. So, but I think this is why pivoting into part two. And I know we're not going to get into, <laughs> I'd love to get into part three, but we're already almost an hour in and we're just getting into part two because finding yourself and, and this is what I appreciated about too. I appreciate a lot of the work that you've done, but the, the piece of recognizing your own feelings, Thanks. your thoughts, and if you're feeling cloudy or up in the air or confused and there's inconsistency in someone's words and there's actions, Mm-hmm. those are red flags you got to trust yourself right so i'd love to to kind of get your perspective on that too and, and what that means for us to start picking up the mm-hmm. pieces if you will
1: yeah that part two in my book is all about finding yourself and par- and a huge part of that is learning to identify your thoughts and feelings because like you've talked about for so long you may have never thought about what do i think and what do i feel and if you're in a narcissistic relationship all of your mental and emotional resources are going to understanding this other person, which is important. You do have to understand narcissism because what they do is so crazy, you feel crazy for explaining it. So there has to be a point at which you're like, oh, okay, I see that, I get that. But that's not all because you have to figure out, well, how, like, who am I? Because after these relationships or during them, you you realize that you've completely disconnected from yourself. And so that's the process that I, you know, kind of take people through in the book is slowing down. I do that a lot. I encourage clients to do that a lot by just checking in with yourself, like literally being intentional throughout the day to stop and say, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Have I eaten anything? Have I, you know, gotten up and like went outside? How do I feel right now? What temperature do I like it in my house? Do I like this song or this song? Do I prefer eating breakfast or not? Like these typical things that Healthy people take for granted that they know, like, of course, you know how you feel or what you like or what you don't like. No, you don't. Especially if you've been in a narcissistic relationship mm-hmm. or environment, you don't know any of those things. So literally like setting reminders on your phone, putting sticky notes up around your house to check in and say, how do I feel? What do I need? And, and writing those things down. And over time, you'll start to see a pattern in yourself of how you typically feel, what you typically need in what environments you feel energized versus in what environments do you feel drained so it is building that self relationship figuring out who you are and then going from there
0: well and i love your approach because i think sometimes when we're in very toxic situations or we're feeling the the despair that can come from being in a very dark place we just want to get through yeah. the healing and feel okay we just want to plow through it right but it's this no. doesn't work that way. It it really is. It's a, it's a change in behavior. And so your approach that you describe in your book is start small and slow. Yeah. Just do, just eat the things that you just described. Do I like this song? <laughs> do I not? What temperature do I, do I like the home to be? Do I like cotton yeah. sheets or do I want Egyptian sheets? Like those things, all that little stuff matters because when I started to learn to parent myself, because mm-hmm. that's exactly what that is. You're, you're parenting yourself. You're learning to to be there for you, your emotional needs, your your mental needs, your physical needs. And that's a process, because if you have spent your entire life not knowing anything about who you truly are, you're yeah. not going to learn it in 48 hours. So but the, but the, I think the the scary thing is, and I'm sure you get this a lot with clients, is we don't realize the joy that can come from reconnecting with ourself and learning about who we are. And and because you get to experience yourself in a way that you never have, and you start to realize, wait a second, I'm actually pretty <laughs> yeah. dang cool, and I've got some good stuff to offer the world. And so I think, like, I'd love to hear from your perspective, Chelsea, on that and, and how you work with your clients if they're kind of struggling with this concept of, of re, rebuilding mm-hmm. a relationship with and yourself.
1: Exactly. Like you said people may go their whole life and not realize who they are. So this may be the first time that you really start to slow down and think, you know, who am I and what do I need? And yes, that's one thing that I really appreciate about my work with clients is that I'm able to be on the outside and I see so much good in my clients, like their their strengths and their compassion and their self-reflection. And I I just feel honored to be able to help them see that in themselves, like to be that healthy mirror, to say, I see this in you, like you really are good. You really did try. You really are compassionate. And once you can start to take care of yourself, then yeah, you do end up developing more self-worth, a stronger sense of self, because now you can say, I know who I am and I know what I like and what I don't like. And that may give you the strength to either leave the, the toxic relationship or at least set boundaries. That's the most important thing and part, like piece of healing is that you learn to take back your mind. You learn to take back your mental real estate, to, to know how you feel, to know what you think, so that even if you have to deal with that narcissist still, and they can go off, they're going to be doing their thing. They're going to be antagonistic. They're going to say, you know, they're going to blame you for things. But once you've done this healing process, Then you're able to say, I hear that person, but I'm not attached to it anymore. Like, I know who I am. Like, they may say this about me, but I know me. And that is the ultimate way to turn off the gaslight.
0: So true. Trusting yourself, knowing yourself, because when you know that in your heart, if someone's deceiving you or trying to deceive Mm -hmm. you, you will see through it because. You know from within that you know who you are, you know your heart, you know your mind, you know the things that you think about, you know the things that you care about, right. you know what matters so but if you don't know those things, yeah. you're up in the air if someone tells you you're selfish, exactly. you're mean, I,
1: yeah, what well, are you, you do? don't you're go, know okay. about yourself is your biggest vulnerability because before you know yourself, mm. then you think, "Oh, maybe I am selfish like." like we talked about, a lot of narcissists will take your healthy self-reflection and use it against you. So you'll be reflecting on something or wondering about how someone is and, and might make a passing comment like, oh, I wonder what was up with so-and-so today. And the narcissist is like, wow, you are so in everybody's business. Why do you make everything about you? You are so analytical and over, you know, you judge everybody. And that's not your intention at all. But because you are a self-reflective person, you're like, huh, well, maybe I did do that. Like, maybe I was being judgmental. Why am I doing that? But once you know yourself, then the narcissist doesn't get to speak in your life that way anymore. Like, you, you hear them, but, again, you don't attach to it. Like, you don't take it personally. So the more you know about you, the less a narcissist can control you, manipulate you, gaslight you, which is why your own healing is so essential to dealing with narcissistic abuse.
0: I know. And that's why. Well, definitely going to have to have you on again, Chelsea, because we we, there's a lot to get through, even on part two related to am I being abused? Like we talked some of the warning signs like I think a big piece is is trusting the the mental fog piece. If you're consistently questioning, am I this? Am I? That's a probably a telltale sign that you're in some sort of unhealthy relationship at the least. Yeah. But potentially toxic. Exactly. But then the trauma bond, reparenting yourself, setting boundaries, though. I'm glad that you said that, though, I, I, I think as a lead way into kind of wrapping the episode. And then I'd love to to share how, how audience okay. the audience could connect with you and if you have a kind of parting message for us. But boundaries, as we're reconnecting with ourselves and then setting boundaries, are the ultimate way to start to break free from from yeah. these toxic relationships, aren't yeah. they?
1: Yeah, uh, boundaries. And I talk about in my book, like, Silent Boundaries, which we can talk about more next time. But it's it's those mental and emotional boundaries mm. <laughs> where you, you know, you're setting them even if no one knows that you are. Like, it's thinking to yourself, I don't think that. I don't feel that. that. Like, this is actually what's true for me. And taking back how you feel is the biggest boundary of all.
0: It really is. I, I think for me, and you know, cause I I, I don't, I don't have clients or, so a lot Mm -hmm. of this is reflected in my own work that I've done. And the biggest change has been around knowing what I know about myself and the way I treat other people. Is that true or not? And Mm -hmm. when you have that power, that's why we hold the ultimate power, no matter what, because that self-knowledge frees us from the deception or the, the, the power gains that ultimately narcissists play. And to your point, It's often the most self-reflecting, compassionate people Mm -hmm. that get caught in these relationships because they're caring, they're reflective, but they're we're not fully tied and connected to who we are from within because probably had a family life that was similar to this and we're kind of repeating Mm -hmm. the process. So until we learn to recognize it, we get caught in these cycles of abuse. And ideally, more people are going to learn about your work. They'll start to free themselves from this abuse cycle and we can start to shift our society away from such a, because the thing you even say this in your book, like once you start seeing it everywhere, or it may have been one of your, the stories (laughs) in there, you see it everywhere. Yeah. Like it's, it's crazy. So, so Chelsea, how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn about your work, maybe, or potentially work with you? You do a lot of great stuff. Yeah, therapy and
1: coaching, uh, I have my book. If people are really resonating with this conversation, you want to learn more about narcissism, how to communicate with narcissists, how they think, and ultimately how to heal. You can get the first chapter of my book for free, or I also send out a free bi-monthly newsletter on all these things as well. You can get that at com.
0: Awesome. Well, Chelsea, and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes for them so they can sign up for, for your newsletter, get a taste of what you're doing. I'll link to your book too, because it's fantastic. And I'm pretty sure I got it for 99 yeah. cents as a Kindle, so that's a killer deal. <laughs> You can spend a dollar and get this information you're doing like I, it's tremendous work you've done, Chelsea. So we'll link back to your work there. Is there anything that you'd like to share before we we end the show today?
1: i I just there's a, such a heaviness that comes from you know dealing with these topics and people in these relationships. So I just encourage people to if you resonate with this and you think you may be in a toxic relationship to start to write things down and notice those patterns and just give yourself the space to look and see what you're dealing with, to see what resonates and what doesn't. I know many survivors are hesitant to look at this because if they see it, then they're afraid, well, what am I gonna do? Like if my spouse, if my mom, if my dad, if my sister is a narcissist, like I don't even know what to do with that. So I just, I can't even look at it. Decide not to decide, give yourself the space See what resonates, see what doesn't, write things down, look for the patterns. And then once you see what you're dealing with, then decide what you want to do. But at least give yourself the gift of knowing what this is so you don't have to blame yourself so much.
0: That's awesome. Just it doesn't have to be this big, huge decision, right? Just take one little to start now. Okay. that's the best. And honestly, that's how we do Mm -hmm. everything in life is one step at a time, one day at a time. So no matter how bad it may be or seem now, just one little step. That's a fantastic message, Chelsea. Well, look, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Definitely going to have to get you back on because we only got through. I don't even know if that was halfway through your book because we just started part two. So there's a lot of great stuff in there. So I. I certainly appreciate you and your time here and hopefully the audience enjoyed the nuggets that you shared with us in today's conversation. I'm learning a lot. I selfishly (laughs) benefited huge from our conversation too. So I feel like I got a little therapy session on the house here. So Chelsea, I appreciate your time. Look forward to connecting with you in the future. And for the listeners, catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Order Within. If you found the episode helpful, please consider sharing, rating, and subscribing. New episodes will be released every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next time, y'all.